Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If you all remember from quite a long time ago, I had uh, Grant Mann join me from the Navy SEAL Museum. Uh, this was a couple years back. Well, joining me today is the Chief Executive Officer of the Navy SEAL Museum, Rick Kaiser. Rick recently published the book, Frogman Stories. Uh, during COVID, he started working on that book. He had 34 years in the military. He joined the Navy at the age of 17, wanting to be a submariner, saw a pamphlet about Navy SEALs and decided that's what he wanted to do. Uh, he spent time with SEAL Team 2. He spent a lot of time with SEAL Team 6. He received a Silver Star Medal for Valor during the Battle of Mogadishu, the famous Black Hawk Down incident. Uh, we dive in to Rick's uh, history, his service. Um, and then we also dive into uh, what led him to write his book. Uh, as it's kind of considered a little bit controversial. We get into that about Navy SEALs sharing uh, sharing their stories. And why is that? Um, we also talk a bit more about what's going on with the Navy SEAL Museum, kind of update from where we were when we spoke with Grant Mann. And I had a great conversation with Rick. I think he's a great guy. If you want to check out the descriptions below for his book and for the museum, I highly encourage you to do so. Uh, and thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. And make sure you check out our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org, for all of the events that we have coming up every Monday night. We're on Zoom, happy hour with uh, military topics, military history, with authors, historians, every branch, every era. Non-veterans are encouraged to attend. Uh, it's, it's always a great time. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Joining me now is Rick Kaiser, the author of Frogman Stories, also a uh, SEAL team member. Uh, you have a long career, can't wait to dive into it. Uh, but Rick, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you for joining the Scuttlebutt. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, my name is Rick Kaiser. I'm a retired Navy SEAL Master Chief. Um, I did 34 years total, uh, active and civilian uh, at the SEAL team, mostly at uh, SEAL Team 6 in Virginia Beach. And um, after I retired, uh, I should say after I quit from 34 years, uh, I came out to the Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida. And I'm currently acting as the uh, CEO for the museum because uh, uh, we're going to open up another museum in San Diego, California. So we're going to have one on each coast, just like SEAL teams. I spent a good bit of time in Virginia Beach with family down there, so I know the sound of jets. It's a, it's a wonderful area. Yes, they call it the sound of freedom, right? That's right. I, I got to tell you, I don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Living in Florida, I don't miss it. Yeah, yeah, no, we we were right by Oceana, and you'd hear them gunning past in the early in the morning. You go, okay, there, yeah. there we go. So um, you literally have to stop talking to let the jet go, and then it, but people that live there don't even think a thing about it. But visitors are always like, oh my god, this is loud. Yeah, especially when they're like doing live fire drills off the yeah. coast, and you know people that are new there, they're like, what was that? And it's like, oh, yeah. don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rick, you joined at seventeen. Uh, did you have a military family? Uh, my father was in the uh, Army Reserves, and actually he was also in the Navy Reserves. So uh, I didn't. It wasn't really a uh, like a big part of my life growing up, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't really understand, you know, what his service entailed until later on when I started asking him questions because he never, you know, shared it with me. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, when I I, I graduated high school when I was 17. So I actually started this process when I was 16, mm -hmm. believe it or not. So I went and visited the recruiter and um, 
fully intended to join the Navy to be a submariner, believe it or not. I had this fascination with the water and the ocean, and I, I thought I wanted to be, a, you know, saw the under, undersea world of Jacques Cousteau and uh, thought that submarines were cool, and I wanted to do that. So I walked into the office, started getting the details on what I'd have to do. And uh, on his desk, he had a little pamphlet about Navy SEALs. And back in 1978, at this time, um, not many people knew about Navy SEALs, except if you were lived in Virginia Beach or even Coronado, uh, what they did. There weren't any books or movies or anything like that, except for this recruiting pamphlet. So I took it home and uh, read it. And three days later, I went back to the recruiter's office and said, this is what I want to do. Not having a clue what it meant uh, to be a Navy SEAL, right? I just said the pictures look cool, the jumping and the diving and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the recruiter automatically said, okay, because I was just another number to him, right? So right. I was meeting his quota, but he even didn't understand that, right? So then he started mm -hmm. doing the research and he goes, oh, wait a second, wait a second. We have to do uh, some testing on you before you are even accepted into this program. So I had to take, a, you know, ASVAB, which is the military entrance exam, and you have to score certain, uh, you know, levels on that exam in order to make it to be a seal right so mm -hmm. i was a pretty good student that wasn't that wasn't a big deal i passed that one no uh, no problem but then you had to pass the physical screening test and this mm -hmm. test really hasn't changed for you know 40 years 50 years and that involves um, swimming uh, push-ups pull-ups sit-ups uh, and a mile and a half run mm -hmm. and the only place that where I, I was born raised in milwaukee wisconsin or right south of there oak creek and the only place to get the screening test was the Great Lakes, Illinois, which is the uh, you know uh, recruit training command for the Navy or one of them at that time. So uh, I made the appointment and I had to actually have my mother drive me down there because I was underage to take this test. Yeah, this is uh, this is in December in uh, in Illinois and Wisconsin, and it's cold and it's snowing. And it's miserable. And I remember it being really dark. And I remember my mom driving me down there, not having a clue what she was doing, but she just knew she was taking me to the uh, Navy base for some sort of physical test, right? Mm -hmm. So we go inside the uh, pool. It's late at night after hours, all the recruits are in bed. And the, uh, the Navy SEAL dive motivator is what we call them, was waiting there. And uh, we came in, introduced ourselves. And uh, basically, I got to it on the test. And so the first part is to swim, then you do the push-ups, pull-ups, and um, sit-ups, pass them. And then uh, the last part was the run, and you have to put on a pair of boots and pants and, a, and a, like a t-shirt. And it was probably 20 degrees outside, wind blowing, uh, snow, the track was covered with ice. And he basically says, okay, when I tell you to go, just go. And he didn't never came out of the building, right? <laughs> so him, him, my mom and him, went back inside and I just ran, you know, uh, I ran as fast as I could because that, that was the goal of it. And, uh, you know, I considered it my first SEAL test and, you know, obviously I passed it. I don't even know if they really were tracking what my time was. Mm -hmm. So I, kind of, I came running back in the building. They, I don't even think they even looked outside because it was so cold. And I said, yeah, here's my time. And he's like, okay, good to go. He writes it on the chart and he says, okay, you're in for buds. Um, so, you know, go to your recruiter, tell them you're good to go. And that's oh my goodness. how it all started. Yep.
did you, was there any point during that test, the physical test, that that it kind of dawned on you like this is kind of grueling or this is tough? You know what? I never thought of it like that. I um, was I was a, I was a pretty good athlete. I wasn't the best at anything I ever I did, but I was adequate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I played. I was a jock. I played football and I swam. Thank God, I swam. Um, and I did track and field. So I, none of that was, uh, you know, particularly uh, hard at, you know, one at a time. But when you add them all together uh, during a time limit, that's mm -hmm. when it, that, that's that's what breaks. You know, we say for the men from the boys, right? So uh, right. or the women from the girls in this nowadays. But um, it just it wasn't it wasn't that bad. I I, I didn't. I didn't think it because that if you can pass that screening test at any given time throughout your career, that's the physical standard. And that's what they're looking for. If you can't, then they start, you know, really taking a closer look. At what point, because there starts with sort of the knowledge fortitude, then there's the physical fortitude. But at what point did they start to really test your mental fortitude? Oh, that was day one at Bud's training in Coronado, California, right? So, you, you know, I, and when I was going through, the first thing he did is he went to boot camp and I had went to uh, Orlando, Florida, eight weeks. And then I went to uh, Hull Technician A School, which is just a, a advanced training for to become a, a Navy firefighter and welder and that kind of thing. Because uh, Bud's said from, you know, day one to the present, you lose about 70% attrition rate. So, my class had 140 guys, so we graduated with 20-something, and um, so that means all those other guys, great great people, just not going to be SEALs, go back into the Navy, and they wanted them to have a skill set, so when they went to the fleet, they could fit in, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, so you go to boot camp, A school, and then you go to BUDS, and uh, I really, there, back in those days, there was no, like, prep training or any of that kind of stuff. It was just like, here's the day you're going to start. And if you had a break in there, you would have to do odds and ends, little crappy jobs around the base, clean up, mop, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whatever they needed. And then training started. And um, that's when it started. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. What made you stand out in that crowd? What 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 helped push you into that, you know, 20, 30 percent that, that could make it through? Well, the, the first thing is that the last thing you want to do is stand out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, because the instructors at uh, at Buds are like they're masters of of the game. Their their job is to get you to quit because um, they don't want they want you to quit in uh, training and not in combat, right? Yeah. So they know all the little psychological games that they could possibly know on how to get people to quit. And the the one thing about Buds that nobody can really test is mental toughness, right? So that's that's the key to Buds. Yes, you have to be physically capable of doing what you're supposed to be doing, but it's a really, you know, I'd say a majority of it is mental. So uh, how do you, how did I get that? I guess it's just from my upbringing, um, you know, back in uh, Wisconsin, uh, I had a good, good family life, you know, brothers and sisters uh, were good. My mom and dad were awesome. Um, it wasn't like easy, you know, it wasn't like given anything was given to me, but it was, uh, you know, it was good enough to get me through SEAL training. 
So lead me through a bit of buds. Part of my part of people maybe listening in on the scuttlebutt side might be, uh, you know, the younger generations thinking, "Is buds for me? Is it? Can I be a seal?" I, I remember meeting a friend of mine years ago who who just decided, "I, I want to challenge myself. Can I be good enough to do that?" Um, what was buds like for you? Buds like um, it was literally like a, I, I describe it as like being an alcoholic. It, you do it day by day, right? right. <laughs> because if you think about it in the whole six month period that you're going to be there, mm-hmm. it's absolute misery um, because every day is full to the max from the time you wake up till the time you go to bed with uh, physical tests, mental tests, uh, instructors yelling at you, um, things, doing things you've never done before. Um, and if you think about it, it's overwhelming. So uh, I really did just think about it day after day and tried to do the things I would normally do. Like one of the things, uh, we were in a barracks and uh, there's four guys to a room and just like getting up in the morning, make sure you're on time, making sure your room is clean or all things that were like really looked at by the instructors. And if, if you didn't want extra attention, you made sure your room was clean. Right. Mm-hmm. So we always knew there was guys in there that didn't do that. Right. And they would always get the extra attention and that would get it away from us. And we wouldn't have to go get wet in the morning or, or they get your room trashed and have to redo the whole thing. And uh, so you kind of learned, you know, if you're just squared away, you're going to, you're going to do better than the guy that's not squared away. So that's where the term it pays to be a winner comes from. So it always pays to be a winner, especially at buds when you're, whatever you're doing, whether it's running or obstacle course or swimming, if you're the one in the, in the top third or even the top half, you're not going to get the look, like the last guys are your your uh trainers or not the trainers the uh the instructors at buds um was anybody did anybody stand out to you at that time this is very different this is you know sort of a, a culture shock in a way getting into that getting into buds did any of them stand out to you as like this is the leader i want to be this is the seal that i i imagine myself being you know i actually did not have any of that nothing like that um at buds i actually had the opposite interesting so, uh, after I got to the teams for a little bit and started doing my deployments and operating for any length of time, I, I, I would run into these guys that were my buds instructors and um, some of them, and uh, they weren't as impressive as I thought they were when I was going through a buds training. Mm-hmm. And when I say impressive, I mean, the, the what we say in, in the teams is you can't be a good seal in Virginia beach or Coronado, right? You mm-hmm have to go somewhere you have to be deployed um and the guys that didn't or hit out in in at buds or hit out in coronado or virginia beach weren't the guys that were deploying they were just kind of hanging on for whatever purpose they had mm-hmm. and as i was going back and forth and back and forth and training and doing everything else and deploying i realized that some of these guys just weren't the role models they they could have been you said you mentioned that your parents were great. Was your dad kind of like that role model in your life? Your mom, maybe? I think my mother was more my role model than my father. Um, I spent more time with her. My dad was working a couple of jobs and stuff like that. Um, and my mom was very uh, well loved by our whole community, and especially, you know, my brothers and sisters and I. And she was, uh, you know, definitely the driving force behind what made me today. As you complete buds, 
you know, take us through that final week. Is it like senioritis, like you're ready for it to be over? Or did, was there more energy of like, I'm ready to do this. I'm, I'm ready for this job, no matter what comes at me. I think at the end, well, definitely at the end of Buzz, once you make it through the third phase, and that's the island, we call it the island phase, uh, San Clemente Island back then. Um, once you finish that portion of it, I think there was like two weeks left. And it was really just more of an admin cup. It was kind of like a, a relief and, and a letdown, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. you're relieved that you weren't getting yelled at anymore and you're going to graduate. But uh, the letdown was, it's like, is, is this it? Am I, you know, what's next? Um, so it was a little expectation, but, you know, for me after buds, you know, all our guys went right to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia to jump school. Mm -hmm. And that was really a letdown because we had just completed, you know, arguably some of the toughest training in the military. And we go to Fort Benning with, you know, hundreds of army guys that are just out of boot camp that haven't done anything like we have. Mm -hmm. um, and we were a tight team, obviously. You know, 20 guys and um it was it was i must have been hard for the instructors there because uh they couldn't really hurt us right they mm -hmm. can only drop you for so many push-ups and that kind of stuff and it just um and they knew that we knew that they could hurt us so uh i think i, I give them credit for uh, putting up with us to be honest with you but the, mm -hmm. you know yeah the, uh, the one thing that they did have control over was the jumping right so because none of us had ever jumped out of an aircraft before mm -hmm. so that was the uh, that was the one edge they had because we they knew we were like you know even though we had made it through seal training we hadn't jumped before so that, that's a equalizer for everybody what was your favorite part and least favorite part of buds oh my favorite part of buds was the weekends because <laughs> we had off <laughs> My least favorite uh, was probably, you know, the constant running. We were running everywhere. You ran to chow, you ran back, you ran to lunch, you ran back, you ran to dinner, you ran back, um, and then you ran time runs, right? So it's like, a, it was just a lot of running. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you go through that that training. Like you said, you go, you go into jump school. What was it like jumping out of the plane the first time? If, if you've gone through sort of like all of that attrition, and then you get to this thing that's sort of exhilarating for most people. Was it still that? Was it still kind of exhilarating to, to jump out of a well, perfectly it was good definitely, plane? It was definitely exhilarating. Um, and if anybody tells you that, you know, I see the stickers that say no fear. And, and you know, if, if somebody tells you they don't have any fear, they're pretty stupid because uh, that's what keeps you alive. And uh, mm -hmm. for the very first time, you're jumping out by yourself out of an aircraft. Um, and it's all up to you. I mean, you are scared to death um but you just react uh, with your training and what they taught you and uh, you, you follow through and hopefully you don't get hurt and it was uh it was quite the experience but after, after the first couple then it was you know the fear of the unknown went away and then you knew what to expect mm -hmm. um till and then the night then they throw the next one and you have to do a night jump so then you can't see anything right so then you just got to try to remember what happened to you during the day and that's what's going to exactly, but you just can't see, especially when the ground's coming up, you can't really see where you're going to hit. So but it's just, uh, quite the experience. Absolutely. Uh, at what point did you finally get uh, placed with you? SEAL Team 2 was who you were, you started oh, with yeah, in, yeah. in 80. So actually at Buds, they uh, give you, a, they call it a wish list. And I, and I actually requested all East Coast teams. So back in those days, I requested SEAL Team 2. UDT 21 and UDT 22, which were all at Little Creek 
Virginia. And um, because I believe it or not, since I was so young, uh, I turned 18 and, and buds, right? And um, uh, Virginia at the time, the drinking age there was 18. Um, and California was 21. And I was like, I'm not going to hang out in California for three years and not be able to go to the bar or, or hang out with my friends and have a beer without getting in trouble, right? So I put in for all East Coast teams. And fortunately, they picked, uh, they let me go to SEAL Team 2. Um, they always call it a, the needs of an the needs of the Navy, mm-hmm. right? So that's, yeah, and that's the other thing they say is uh, uh, they don't call them orders for nothing because they're not requests. Right. So uh, SEAL Team 2, a lot of them had just been uh, transferred from 2 to 6 that had just formed up when I first got to the SEAL Team. And uh, so there left openings for me at 2, which were which was wonderful because SEAL Team 2 was a great team. The same way that you were looking at those guys out of basic at jump school, when you first hit SEAL Team 2, were the, the veteran guys kind of looking at you guys like the fresh, the fresh meat? I think, yes, you're always proving yourself if you're never you know until you get to you know 20 years in the navy you're you're always the new guy sometimes mm-hmm. so back in the, when i first got to seal team two my uh my idols or mentors were all vietnam veterans mm-hmm. so they had actually served in in vietnam in the jungles and the rivers and the deltas of vietnam so you know they had a lot of knowledge to impart to the new guys and we were just constantly learning and that's that's the key. Learn and keep your mouth shut, and uh, you'll stay alive. Correct me if I'm wrong. Were those Mac V guys for Vietnam? No, those are all SEAL Team SEAL okay. Team Two, SEAL Team One, and SEAL Team Two. And I didn't know that. That's a, that's that's a fact for me that I didn't know that SEAL Team One and Two were were in Vietnam as well. Yeah. So the first two SEAL teams were actually created in '62 by President Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So actually, Kennedy signed the paperwork, so he gets the credit for it. But it was actually Admiral Arlie Burke that uh, tasked his staff to make some unconventional naval warfare teams to be like the counterparts of the Army Green Berets. Mm-hmm. And that's when they came up with the, the Navy SEALs. So, yeah, so first two teams, one and two, both went to uh, Vietnam, multiple tours, multiple uh Presidential unit citations, awards, uh, the high, most highly decorated unit in the Navy, um, obviously. So uh, it was uh, those were those guys were my teachers. Can you describe a bit of what their mission was in Vietnam? We do have a lot of Vietnam veterans who listen in on the scuttlebutt. Yeah, so the, the SEALs back in those days, got to remember, brand new, right? So uh, our predecessors were underwater demolition teams. And their main job was to come across the beach and, and scout the beaches for uh, reconnaissance or um, uh, amphibious landings. So basically the Marines and the Army coming in on landing craft, our guys would make sure the beaches were safe. There were no obstacles. They weren't waiting for them with machine gun nests. That was our job. And then all of a sudden it morphed in the SEAL teams. And then we started going across the beach, going inland more. Um, especially, like I said, in Vietnam and the rivers and the deltas because our our our, the difference of Navy SEALs, other special forces, is really our ability to work in the water, on top of it, underneath it, whatever we got to do. That's our skill. Um, so they put us in in that in that situation in the deltas and the and the rivers because the Viet Cong were using those as as a highway basically mm-hmm. to get supplies and people and whatever they needed up and down. And our job was to interdict that 
and figure out and figure out how to stop them. So a lot of the things that early seals did are still done today. So a lot of the uh, um, you know interrogation methods, how they uh, how they got uh, intelligence, um, uh, how who they targeted, like uh, you know village elders or taxpayers or tax collectors, you know, how, and then how they would work off that intelligence to go get the next couple of, of missions. Mm-hmm. All started in Vietnam, and it's just you know morphed over time to what it is today, and it's very similar, but uh, obviously we have a lot better. Uh, electronics and drones and everything else to help us do the same thing that's that's a, a, a almost a rabbit hole i want to dive straight into there have a couple of questions here but but first just because you brought it up you look at the guys now the guys coming out of buds and all the technology that they have at at hand do you feel like when you came out in in 79 80 uh do you wish like oh man i wish i would have had that to help us out or do you feel like what we did back in 79 80 was you know we did it a different way, but I feel like you feel like that way was the the right way. Get you know, get 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 in, get your hands dirty, maybe a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah, I think the the current crop of seals that are coming out are uh, are are very very good. You know, I'm not saying that we're better than them or they're better than us, but they're it's different. Um, mm-hmm. They were they were yeah, they have a job that I think is probably harder in some ways because. When I went through training, you're, you were looked at your skills on shooting and, and be, being this physical tough seal. And now it's not only that, you have to be able to work a computer and the GPS and call for fire and do all these other things that are required on today's battlefield. So they have a lot more um, responsibility and skill sets that they need to master uh, mm-hmm. than we did. So it just, you know, we didn't have it, so we didn't know any better, right? So I learned how to, how to navigate with a map and compass, and then mm-hmm. and switched over to a GPS, right? Which I, which I fought tooth and nail, right? But now I don't think the guys even learn map and compass anymore because everybody has a GPS. But I'm sure they know the basics. But um, uh, so it's it's just a different skill set. Like they looked at, uh, like I said, our shooting ability a lot more than they probably do today, because mm-hmm. now everybody can be at that kind of shot. It, with the with the guns and the optics, I mean, if you practice, you're going to be really good. Back in those days, you really had to practice, right? Because you didn't right. have all the same equipment. It's correct me on this as well, and this is for any listeners who might be considering SEALs. Is a SEAL team member, uh, is the unit considered like tip of the spear, or are they considered more recon? Like tip of the spear is in special ops, or, you know, recon, or does it all sort of come together in one package and it's whatever the mission, whatever the current mission's needs are. So there's there's a very few units in the military. And when I say the military, I mean all the military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines that are that are designed for certain missions. And uh, the SEALs are one of them that are designed for direct action. Mm-hmm. What that means is, you know, our job is to go in and take care of bad guys. That's it. We don't... Uh, Try to go in and win the hearts and minds. We don't like the special, or like the Green Berets do. Uh, we have a, a specific job to go in and take care of bad things. Um, and the rest of the uh, forces really don't do that, except for a couple other units that are our counterparts in these other services. So that that's the difference. That's what we train for all day long, and that's why we are what we are equipped to do. Um, 
hope does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Uh, because you know, you you wonder what SEAL teams are called in for. And I had one of my questions written down was, you know, describing the difference between Delta and Green Beret and SEALs. Like, what are their specific sort of missions? And given given the the landscape, or given the battle, or given you know what what the the goals are with this particular uh, you know mission, how are the SEAL teams utilized in in different you know in relation to Delta and Green Berets? Okay, so. When you say Delta, it's Army Army Special Operations. So um, their their counterparts would be SEAL Team Six. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those two units are uh, the only difference between them and the rest of the SEAL teams or the rest of the Special Forces is that they answer directly to the president, mm -hmm. right? So the other SEAL teams, like SEAL Team Two, for example, uh, answer to a combatant commander, like. Uh, in that area, like Yukon, uh, mm. like Europe or uh, the mid Middle East or whatever like that, they'll answer to a army or a uh, you know Navy admiral or general, and that that's who's in charge of them. Those other two units, like I said, they uh, they answer to the president directly. So mm. depending on what the mission is, you know they kind of pick which unit gets that job, and, it's, and a lot of it depends on uh, where these guys are in the world, who's closest. To that particular spot, what the skill sets are needed, um, is there, uh, you know, is water involved, or do we need boats, you know, and that all goes into the decision making on which unit gets that mission. Um, so those those two units in particular, that's it's just a chain of command thing. Interesting. Same seals that are at six or at two, at four, and everywhere else. Where else? I can't really speak to the army guys, but um, mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's how it works in the navy. At what point in your in your uh, SEAL career did you start to really get a, a sense of the history of the SEALs and, and appreciate that history, too? Yeah, that's a really good question, because now, as you know, I run the Navy SEAL Museum, right? So uh, I got to be honest with you, and I'm, very, I'm not kind of ashamed of it. It didn't really happen until I got to the museum itself. Mm -hmm. After 34 years of being in the Navy, I didn't really know a lot about our history and heritage. And that is a fault of uh, of our unit, to be honest with you. It's just we don't do a really good job teaching our young guys about the importance of uh, you know the history and heritage and what what the guys did before us. And I guess the point is is that we're not really special. Um, people have been doing this since World War II, and they had a lot less to work with back in those days uh, than we do today. And I think a little bit of, uh, you know, history and heritage and knowledge would help, you know, make some decisions for our current, uh, our current SEALs. And that's what my job is now, to, to educate these guys, not only them, my, our own community, but the public in general. I walk a very fine line, like writing a book or uh, doing a documentary. Uh, so my goal is not to give away tactics and techniques and classified information, but it is to educate people about who we are, what we do, and why it's important, especially today. In today's day and age, is, I mean, it's kind of crazy out there, you know, mm -hmm. uh, everything that's going on. And a place like the Navy SEAL Museum offers young people and old people a place to go that uh, where they'll learn about, you know, honor, courage, commitment, sacrifice, uh, character, you know, all those things that they may not get elsewhere, like school or, or, or whatever. And that and these museums are becoming a school um, for people that want to learn 
everything, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of just what they're taught at, at whatever public education they go to. Why do you think the Navy SEALs, and this is maybe a personal question in, in my mind, because I've always, as a civilian, you hold the Navy SEALs as sort of this almost mythological thing. Like you you hear about the Navy SEALs and you're like, that just sounds cool. Like these guys that just clandestine operations. And why do you think that sort of captured civilians' imagination so much? The uh, Hollywood, I think that's, yeah. that's the big part of it. It's, mm -hmm. it's just the... Uh, you know, and, and we're very successful uh, for the most part in, in what we do, uh, mission-wise, mm -hmm. right? So uh, yes, we take we take heavy losses, and we have for the last you know during the global war on terror, but we've also for what our small unit does or units do, to compared to you know the losses we take, our successes are much greater than that, and I think that's people see that that in Hollywood, but the average. Seal, I mean, it's usually a per most, you know, uh, majority a, a personality type, good shape, you know, very confident, uh, never quit, uh, will do whatever it takes to get the mission done. I think that's what people are, are fascinated with. Then they hear about Bud's stories and how tough that is, and they figure out, you know, I can't, how can people live through that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's just normal normal guys with uh with a different job but our but our mission is the same that's to protect our country and our families and our friends is that I where think, you would i think most of the military folks would tell you the same answer is that what maybe was going through your mind a bit in the 80s hitting seal team two take me a bit through like your your first couple of weeks and your first deployment um so back in those days, field team two it was responsibility was Northern Europe. So I was uh, assigned to like a winter warfare platoon. So we worked with all our Northern counterparts, the Norwegians, the Germans, Danish. Um, and we would go there and work in some of the crappiest environments you could imagine in the cold, right? Yeah. So I had to learn, uh, even though I was from Wisconsin, I didn't typically go camping out in Wisconsin in the snow, right? So you have to learn. I had to learn how to become a much better skier, snowshoe, how to survive in the cold, how to do our mission um, in that environment. Because most of the time, the cold was worse than the enemy, right? So, because mm -hmm. uh, they didn't come out and find you out in the, out in the wilderness because it was too cold for them, also. But uh, so we had, but we had to survive. So that was that was my first taste of the, of the SEAL teams and my first deployment. So uh, it was it was it, you know, it was awesome. Got to tell you, other than, you know, I can't tell you how many nights I stared up at the top of my tent thinking and freezing my butt off. What You know, when you're in one of those mummy sleeping bags and your only thing that you can see is like your face because it's so cold out. You know, I was like, what am I doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I could be home in a warm bed. Yes, exactly. But, um, so that, that was, you know, that was my first couple deployments at SEAL Team 2. Mm -hmm. And I volunteered to go to SEAL Team Six. And um, why the change? I Granada. Mm -hmm. So SEAL Team Two was on the hook to go to Granada, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we had been training for that mission for I don't know six months, I guess, to uh, go in there and do some reconnaissance. Uh, maybe not six months because it was uh, it was pretty quick, so a couple months. Um, and uh, we were replaced with SEAL Team Six, 
oh. at the last minute. So I'm like going, well, that tells me something. Those are the guys that are going to get the mission. So I said, hey, I'm signing up for those guys. And that's mm-hmm. what that's what I wanted to do. When And we recently on the Veterans Breakfast Club, we have our Monday night happy hour Zoom programs. And it's all branches, all eras, all military history, historians, authors. We do this every Monday. We recently talked about the 40th anniversary of Granada. Um, and dove into that. I helped host that program, so got got familiarized with the history of that, which I had no no previous knowledge of. Uh, and SEAL Team Six had a had a big part in uh, was it securing the uh, was it the ambassador or the the, politician? the governor's the governor's yeah, the governor and the radio station. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. So our and uh, back in those days, um, like we were talking about earlier, they didn't have the communications and. Right. everything that they do nowadays and they and they ended up getting uh pretty shot up at both locations because the enemy had uh, armored vehicles and heavy machine guns and stuff and our guys you know obviously were going with uh you know m4s and and limited ammunition and uh, they did their missions but they uh, ended up you know getting the hell out of out of dodge because you, you know you can't fight an rpg with a with a, a m4 wasn't there some famous story in there too about using a payphone? They had to, they they lost their way to communicate and used a payphone to call back to the United States. That's yeah, that's actual true story. Uh, portions of it are true. It wasn't a, a pay. It was just a, a, a phone inside inside the uh, uh, building, um, and they actually called the SEAL Team Six quarter deck, um, which is the front office when you enter the team building. And convince the guy that they who were they they were who they were right because yeah. they were hung up on first right because they were like this isn't real and then the, the second time they just in case because I guess they started threatening the guy um, he you know informed the higher ups and sure enough they caught, got an airstrike in there to help them uh, out of that situation when you read about these exploits or at what point i should say did you read about these the exploits of that seal team uh i didn't read about that i i knew because uh our compound the seal team two and the seal team six compound were right next to each other okay so i was see and talk to these guys mm-hmm. on a daily basis and that's you know that's when i kind of got the bug to go over there and give it a shot what did you think of the the difference between SEAL Team Six and SEAL Team Two? Uh, once you you have to volunteer again, um, you have to get uh, approval from your commanding officer and your command master chief, um, and then you have to go through another six month training um, regimen. And uh, the difference was the training wasn't designed to make you quit, right? Because you were already a SEAL. It was it was a, uh, a uh, designed to teach you how they did business at SEAL Team 6. So mm-hmm. that whole team was created for things like hostage rescue. And uh, so they they were masters of, uh, and still are, of uh, entering buildings um, and trying to rescue hostages or, or do whatever our job is without getting yourself shot up. So uh, that's a very complicated and detailed mission, and that's what they try to teach you in that, in that training phase. And some guys just didn't get it right um and uh it didn't make them any less of a seal they just weren't ready for seal team six but they could also always try out again you know it's just uh, just one of those things and i happened to be fortunate to, to make it through and um uh, spend 30 years there 
So at what point were you, were you deployed to Mogadishu and in the, in the incident going on there? So I was a part of a uh, assault squadron back in those days. And, I was, and part of the squadron was a sniper element. And I was part of that sniper element. And um, when Mogadishu was, uh, you know, getting hot and heavy when the uh, Pakistanis had been hit by the uh, warlords and uh, they did committed some like very bad things to these uh, Pakistanis. That's when the Americans got called in there to try and uh, A, get the food to the people that was needed and B, capture the people that were responsible for that and other things. Um, and the army was the one that were, were called on that specific mission. Remember we had the two units. Yep. So the, the general picked the army, but the, in order to I don't know what, what his thought was on this was to, you know, stop the rivalry between us. They decided to put four snipers in with the, uh, with the whole army unit. So it was mm. four, four seals and, you know, 200 army guys. Right. So, um, we, we just, you know, adapted and tried to do the best we could. I learned a lot about the army <laughs> during that time. And, uh, that, that, that's about it. Uh, as you come out of that, uh, and I'm sure people can read about as you received this, uh, was, uh, the Silver Star for what you did in Mogadishu, and people can read about that. But as you come out of Mogadishu, how did you, how did your thoughts change about your time in the SEALs, your time in the military? That was that your first uh, experience with combat. That was my first, yes, actual, you know, very intense combat. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I guess my uh, thought process was to try to impart what I had learned. It wasn't just a one day battle. We were there for months, right? Mm -hmm. Doing different things uh, for months. And just to try to teach the uh, younger guys uh, my experience, how mm -hmm. things, you know, what worked, what didn't, you know, just like uh, I had been taught by our Vietnam vets. So after the Mogadishu, I think I, was, I went to the, I was the in charge of training as a senior enlisted guy. Mm -hmm. for the for the new seals coming in the seal team six and uh so that that they did that for a couple of years and then just kept you know moving up the ranks at what point was 9 11 after that that was several oh you know, couple that decades. was 9 11 was uh well uh 2001 Mogadishu was 93 mm -hmm. yeah and in 2001 was 9 11 and that was in the operations department of, of the, so in the in the navy um, I'm not sure how it works in the army, but the operations uh, department basically runs the command as far as uh, uh, not tactically, but everything else, right? So mm -hmm. uh, team X wants to get to this point over here. We figure out how to how to make it happen, how to get them supplied. Um, that's one of the aspects of it. Any everything that basically needs to get up to the commanding officer comes through operations first, and then it's just either decided at that point or pushed up to the boss. Uh, that's, that's what I did for like 10 years. Did you want to get back out on the field after 9-11? Was there something about that? that? Yeah, you know what? I think I thought about it. And uh, but at that point, you know, when it happened, everybody was deployed. Right. So it was like I was it was myself and another master chief, uh, retired master chief in the ops and that we were it. We were the only ones left trying to uh, manage a team that had all deployed off somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't like uh, I thought about it for a while, but then I was like, oh, you know, this is my place. I need to 
I need to stay and 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 help in this in this aspect because I and I think it was the right move on my part because at the time like I said we had myself and another master chief we did it like that for years and then uh, eventually you know as, as more manpower and money started coming in and then it, it changed the whole aspect of uh, how ops was were run out of there mm -hmm. so yeah I was, I was happy to be part of that I want to go back to something you said earlier about the no fear and double back here on, on Mogadishu a touch, just something about when you jump out of a plane, if you don't have fear, you know, you're not human, but as you get into that first really kinetic situation in your career, did you experience fear during that time? No, it was all reverted back to training. Um, yeah. Yep. That was it. That was it. Didn't you really think about, didn't have time to think about being afraid until it was all over. Hmm. Um, when you're, when you'd be walking around afterwards, uh, trying to go going to get something to eat, and all of a sudden, a lot you'd hear a loud noise and you'd jump, you know. Hmm. Um, but other than that, no, you didn't really think about it uh, until you had time to think about it. Um, and like I said, it, it really, you know, for one thing, I was uh, I was older. I was probably I don't even remember how old I was back in those days, but it was 30, 30 ish. So it wasn't like an eighteen year old seal getting into that and I'd already been well trained and been through a lot up until that point. Mm -hmm. So that definitely helped. So I, I think about you know some of these young men and women that are out there now defending this country uh, at a very young age and the experiences they see, I, I think to myself, you know, how would I have handled it? Hmm. And the answer is I, I think I know how, but I don't know until it happens, right? Mm -hmm. So Lee Stu, you 2013, you exit the military. At what point did you decide Frogman Stories, the book you wrote, like, what point did the story start to bubble up and you say, you know what, I need to get this onto paper? So honestly, it didn't even come in, uh, into my head because it's a very controversial thing to write books in the mm -hmm. field, right? So I knew I was never going to write a book about uh, missions or, uh, you know, blood and guts and, you know, how we've been there, done that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I guess how I approach life and time in the teams is through humor. So uh, that's why I decided to write that book. And it actually happened when uh, COVID hit. I can't remember exactly when that was, but even in Florida, we did shut down for like a month or so or six weeks. And while I was home after uh, you know a week or so, I was like, man, I'm getting, I'm going Nancy, not being able to leave the house, do anything. So I said, hey, uh, my wife says, you should you know write a book. Mm -hmm. I said, why not? So I just started writing the book. And it took me, before all said and done, it took me two years to get it done. And, uh, you know, it was on the computer. And finally, one day I called up uh, a friend of mine, uh, Admiral McCraven, that I worked for many, many years. And uh, he had written a book himself uh, called uh, Make Your Bed. Um, and he also wrote another one called Sea Stories. So I called him for some advice and he, he helped me. And uh, there you go. There's the book. And I also have another friend, believe it or not, that I called for advice. His name is Jack Carr. I'm sure you've heard of him. Mm -hmm. um, also, he he happened to be another guy that uh, uh, that I had ran into uh, a, a number of times at, at SEAL Team 6. He was coming in as a, an augmentee. See, we had so many things going on at that team. We had to bring in other SEALs from other teams to augment our, our teams. Mm -hmm. And Jack happened to be one of those guys. And um, 
he had written a book uh, about, I guess, five years ago now. And uh, they were, he was at a local bookstore. And um, my media marketing director from the museum says, hey, will you go support this seal? He wrote a book and it's called Terminalist. And uh, his name is Jack Carr. And I'm like, I don't, I have no clue. Who, I don't have no idea who Jack Carr is. Um, but I'll go, I'll go. So I walked in there and I didn't even recognize him because he had a full beard and he didn't, he looked totally different. Cause you know, in the Navy, everybody's had good haircuts and shaved at least uh, yep. when, they, when they leave. Um, and then he goes, Hey Rick, it's good to see you again. And I'm just like, Hey, how's it going? And he goes, I'm so-and-so. I'm like, Oh, okay. Jack Carr was just his book name. Right. Yeah. yeah. So now, uh, you know, obviously he's very successful, uh, mm -hmm. Amazon series of multiple books. So anyway, it's just one of those crazy stories about SEAL life. Uh, it says on the top, life and leadership lessons from the SEAL teams. Uh, what type of leadership lessons if somebody picks up the book, maybe if they're a SEAL team member or not, uh, what do you hope that they take away from the stories involved? I think there's some uh, from things, there, there are stories about lessons that I learned mm -hmm. in my time in the teams from various people. Um, you know, the first one being, you know, Master Chief Rudy Bosch was my first command master chief when I got to SEAL Team 2. And Rudy was a uh, World War II veteran, believe it or mm -hmm. not. He was a, he originally signed up to be a scout and raider, which is one of the predecessors to the SEALs. And um, so he served in there and then he went from there to the underwater demolition teams to the SEAL teams. And he's been a master chief longer than I've been alive when I got to SEAL Team 2. And uh, I guess one of the things that he uh, taught me was that you have to hold some sort of standard in life, right? So his standard at the SEAL Team, if you can imagine trying to control 100-something SEALs running around a team that are all, you know, highly motivated, a lot of energy, uh, tend to get in trouble. Um, but his, his like, uh, you know, hold the line was just make sure your haircut was squared away and you had a good uniform, you know, when you had it on. Mm -hmm. And um, at, at first I didn't really, you know, didn't really care, you know, because it was just like, that's, I mean, everybody should be able to do that, right? Mm -hmm. But then as I, I spent more time at the team, I realized not everybody could do that, right? Uh, they didn't uh, pay attention to some of the even simplest details and he would hammer them relentlessly. Mm -hmm. And um, and I realized, you know, if you can just, you know, do the simple things, you know, it's just like buds. You don't want to get, you know, pays to be a winner. So don't get your attention drawn to you for something stupid. Mm -hmm. you know, get it for something important. So that's, I mean, that's one of the lessons that I learned that, that's in the book. So you, uh, how did you get involved with the museum? The... Uh, Navy SEALs have a, a association called the Navy SEAL, uh, UDT SEAL Association in uh, Virginia Beach. And uh, uh, one of the magazines had an ad for the museum and become the executive director of the Navy SEAL Museum, right? So just like everybody else, I, I signed up and uh, got interviewed and selected and came down to Florida. Again, not having a real clue what I was getting into because, mm -hmm. you know, I've spent 30 something years in the Navy. And all of a sudden, I'm now thrust into this. It's like a pseudo uh, Navy slash, uh, you know, business, right? Yeah. Uh, so museums of business, and um, 
and our job is to uh, you know, preserve the history and heritage of the seals, uh, honor our fallen at our memorial, and uh, take care of our family and our community. That's our that's my mission. So uh, as long as I had that, I could clearly you know make decisions. I'm like, does this help my mission or does this not help? Right. Right. So you know, there's a lot of gray area in there, and I had to take a lot of chances. But from the time I got here to the time to now to the present day, I mean, the museum is grown leaps and bounds we're building a museum in san diego we're expanding here in florida um we're building a a, a monument in normandy on yeah. omaha beach that will be dedicated uh end of may uh that is utterly fantastic it's right mm -hmm. on the same uh actually so if you know anything about d-day it's on mm -hmm. omaha beach on red uh, red sector where our guys, our Naval Combat Demolition Units, actually went out to the beaches and, and blew up the obstacles on D-Day. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's going to be a beautiful park so people can sit there and reflect. They see the ocean. They see the same path where the guys walked up the beach, um, you know, after they had taken it from the Germans. And um, it's, it's going to be something special. I'm sure. Uh, going back to what you said, why is it so controversial for a Navy SEAL to share their story? I shouldn't say, when you say share their story, there's some very controversial stories out there. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when people think of uh, a SEAL writing a book, uh, they tend to think of the, the ones that aren't, that didn't do so well, you know, and I'm not going to mm -hmm. name any names, but uh, uh, some of what, you know, it's about teamwork. You know, we work as a team. No one individual did anything alone. Mm -hmm. um, so when you claim to be the, the best or the baddest, uh, seal or whatever military member you're not you're not you're doing yourself a disservice right so right. once people get the book like like frogman stories or make your bed or terminal list they they can judge for themselves and it's it's not like that but some of those guys that write these books are they're the opposite of that it's all about me it's about what i did how badass i am and that's that's the controversial part interesting um how big, you know, you say Master Chief. When we talk a bit about the VBC, like becoming a Master Chief, how big of an accomplishment was that for you? It was huge because the Navy uh, has quotas. And, and like at any given time, I think it's like 1% of the total, say there's, yeah, I don't even know how many people are in the Navy, uh, 200,000 people, only 1% of those can be Master Chiefs. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's like, uh, I think it's like 2% two, 2 could be, senior chiefs and then it's like five percent can be chiefs so making it up there is is not easy because it's the percentages are are, are low mm -hmm. uh it's easier for seals because we do a lot of things and we have to be uh ready to go to anywhere in the world and act in an embassy or act in whatever and they mm -hmm. usually want to see more senior people doing that kind of thing um so and we you know and we you know when they write up the evals you know when you write about uh went to Somalia, did this and that. And how do you compare this to the poor guy on the ship that, you know, was doing a great job on his ship, but will never have that sort of opportunity to do what I did, mm -hmm. right? So the Navy, you know, kind of rewarded that. I really want to uh, thank you for your time here today to be joining on the Scuttlebutt. And, and I want to know where can people pick up Frogman stories and how can they support the museum and the mission of the museum? 
Well, the first thing you can do is you can go right to our website, which is www.navysealmuseum.org, right? Mm -hmm. And that tells you everything you want to know about us, what we do, our schedule of events, uh, how to donate, um, tells you about Normandy, tells you about San Diego, tells you about Florida, um, all the things the SEALs have going on today. And then, like I said, a lot about the history and heritage. Um, you can get you get the book on that website and or you can go right to Amazon, look it up, Frogman Stories, and uh, pay your fee and get the book. Rick, do you still like to run everywhere? Yes, I do. Actually, I just I ran this morning, as a matter of fact. So, uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate that I can still run and uh, am able to. And so I'm going to keep doing that until I can. Marathons or just run? No, run no, for... just 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 to stay in shape. I very seldom do a race anymore. Uh, well, thank you again for for joining me here on the podcast. I'm sure we we really just scratched the surface of all the stories that you have. So I encourage people to go down into the description of this video, or if you're listening, just go down into the description, look up the links. I'll have them down for Frogman Stories, uh, Rick's wonderful book, um, and definitely check out the museum. I hope that whenever I'm down down south from here from Pittsburgh, I can visit the museum, and if I get out to San Diego, I'd love to see the new facility. Can you uh, update us on when that'll be completed? That'll be open in the next year. Excellent. Um, well, please tell Grant Mann, a former guest of the Scuttlebutt, yeah. that I say hi, um, and I hope to have you back again for another Scuttlebutt episode. My pleasure, and thank you very much, and I suggest visiting in, like, February. February is the, be the best time? Well, for you it is. It's absolutely. <laughs> the first snowfall just hit here yeah, in Pittsburgh, and I'll look, I'll look forward to getting out of Dodge in February. Roger, this a Florida land and a free. Absolutely. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations. So I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.